0: Well, again, I hope you have your Bibles with you and you've got them open to Psalm 119. We're going to consider a selection of verses from the Psalms, so we're going to be flipping back and forth uh, throughout Psalm 119. Uh, so I hope you get your Bibles open. As you're turning there, let me tell you what our aim is tonight. I'm uh, a new pastor here at Fisherville, in case you didn't know. Thank you. Uh, and so one question that I get asked a good bit, is what is your strategy for discipleship in the church? What's your plan for seeing people grow? It's a question I get asked a good bit. There's any number of ways that we could answer that question. I do hope that we grow in making disciples since that's the mission of the church is to make disciples. And the elders are certainly praying and seeking the Lord's wisdom on how we can continue to lead in this way but here's how I answer that question most often what's your strategy for making disciples I'll respond by saying this I'm a pretty simple pastor not a flashy guy I believe slow growth is better than flash in the pan excitement I had a pastor ask me once which one grows faster weeds or redwoods weeds which one do you want redwoods I believe slow growth is better than flash in the pan excitement I believe the Bible's enough I'm a pretty simple pastor, and I believe churches thrive when their vision and their mission are also pretty simple. One of the quickest ways for a church to get distracted and become ineffective is to spread her focus out over a broad range of things. In the professional world, they call that mission drift, and it can happen in churches too. We try to do so many good things that we end up falling short of the main thing, and that's to make disciples and bring glory to God. So I'm a pretty simple pastor. So what I want to do tonight is give you my view on the most foundational, the most strategic, the most powerful element of a church's discipleship strategy. Here it is. It's pretty simple. It's for each member to anchor his or her daily life in the Word of God. That's it. It's for each member of the church to anchor his or or her daily life in the word of God more important than any program is the commitment of individual church members to feed on God's word day in and day out you show me a church where the congregation as a whole is personally digging into the Bible and I will show you a church that is passionate about discipleship missions loving one another and serving the body of Christ the word of God does not return void And therefore, when a church body is full of word-driven Christians, discipleship happens just because that's what happens. Because that's what the word of God does, is it causes people to grow. I once heard a wise pastor say that the way his church grew was that they tried to get the word of God into every level of the church's life and then get out of the way. And his church grew. That's wise. But it also begins with you and me in our daily lives. It's as much about us as individual Christians as it is about a church's strategy as a whole. So 2021 is drawing to a close. I don't know if you guys are like my wife and I, but the close of 2021 brings a big amen. (laughs) Amen. And 2022 is going to be here soon, praise God. (laughs) And I'm asking you, just like I'm asking myself, I'm asking you to make 2022 a year of feasting on the Word of God. More than any than time before. Whatever your past experience has been, let's resolve together to go deeper in the Bible this upcoming year. Nothing will cause you to grow more as a Christian than rooting your life deeply in God's Word. Nothing will increase your love for God and for others more than treasuring the Bible. Nothing will sustain your faith more than knowing the truth Of the scriptures. That's what I'm asking us to do. We need God's help in this, don't we? So before we look at Psalm 119, let's pause just for a second and pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father, help us. Help us not only to understand your word, but help us to now put it into practice. Help us to not be only hearers of the word, but doers also, believing what you say and then obeying it and following it in our lives so that the world will see that you are our Lord and we are submitted to you. Please give us grace, Father. Please keep me from error. Please give your people discernment and help us to grow, God, in loving you and in making disciples here in our church and out in the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you probably know that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses long. The psalm is a literary work of art. It has 22 stanzas. And every stanza is assigned to a letter from the Hebrew alphabet so that each line in the stanza begins with that same letter. It's a work of art. Uh, But the psalm is not art for art's sake. The psalmist constructed his masterpiece not to draw our attention to his skill, but to the beauty and value of God's word. That's what stands out to you when you read through Psalm 119. You don't so much notice the psalmist, he's not even named. You don't notice the psalmist, you notice the incredibly high value the psalmist places on God's Word. Over and over, the psalmist sings the praise of God's precepts, His law, His Word, His teaching. So that by the end of the masterpiece that is this psalm, you're overwhelmed by the thought of what you hold in your hands. This is no mere book. This is a treasure. It's wisdom, it's life, it's the very Word of God that we hold in our hands. Of course, we can't study all 176 verses tonight, though that would be fruitful. And I would encourage you to read through this psalm at some point in the next couple of weeks. We can't study the entire psalm, but we can take a 10,000-foot overview and notice some key characteristics of God's Word from Psalm 119. And my hope is that by doing this, God would encourage us to anchor our lives more deeply His word. So you want to have your Bibles open. We're going to move around a good bit. I want us to note four characteristics of the Word of God from Psalm 119. First characteristic the Word of God is an anchor in a world adrift in error. The Word of God is an anchor in a world adrift in error. Imagine a ship sailing across the ocean in the midst of a violent storm. The winds are howling. The waves are crashing, and however much the captain tries, the ship is tossed to and fro. It's helpless against the storm. That's a good image for life in this world. Left to itself, humanity is adrift in a storm of error. I could give you a list of examples for how adrift our world is, but sadly, I don't think I need to. We all know. We don't understand ourselves. We don't understand one another. We misunderstand God. We make idols of everything. And on and on we could go. Like that ship tossed to and fro in a storm. Our world is adrift. But into that storm God speaks. And his word is like an anchor. And it holds us steady. God's word is true and it endures forever. Look at verse 160 from the psalm. The psalmist writes, The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Notice this: the psalmist's language. He doesn't say part of your word is true. He says the sum of your word is true. All of it. Every verse in the Bible, every chapter, every paragraph, every book is true. Totally and completely and absolutely. God's word is the unchanging standard of what is true and right and good. This is what theologians refer to as the inerrancy of scripture and long before I knew what the inerrancy of scripture was my dad taught me what it means that the Bible is absolutely and unswervingly true we were remodeling our kitchen one summer and my dad introduced me to the little tool called a speedy square you ever seen one of those it's a right angle like this and we were framing the walls dad said take that speedy square and hold it up to every two by four and I only want the two by fours that are straight to go into the wall Because then we'll build the kitchen straight. That speedy square was the straight edge that everything else got measured against. God's word is the speedy square of life, right? When you hold it up to the things that are true because it's absolutely and unswervingly straight. It doesn't tell us any lies. It's absolutely true. It's an anchor. And so don't miss the connection. The world is adrift in error. What keeps us steady? The one thing that doesn't give us any errors but it's absolutely true God's word. That's not all. Not only is God's word absolutely true, it's also eternally true. Look at verse 89. Verse 89. The psalmist says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Along with God, there are two things that will endure throughout eternity. Human souls And the Word of God. His Word is established forever. It's firmly fixed so that no matter how violent the storm of this age becomes, God's Word holds us steady. In fact, this is how God holds us fast through His eternally and absolutely true Word. And so, friends, you should just ask yourselves this evening I want you to ask yourself Is my life anchored deeply in the Word of God? is my life anchored deeply in the absolute, eternal, unchanging word of God. We shouldn't minimize the severity of the storm that we live in culturally. We shouldn't maximize it either. Nothing new under the sun. This isn't the worst age that's ever been. But it is bad. We shouldn't minimize the severity. The errors and falsehoods of this age are, are frankly, frightening. Frightening both in their scope and in their content. There's only one place to turn in such a storm, and that's God's Word, both as a church and as individual Christians. So we have to root ourselves deeply in the Scriptures. You grab hold of God's Word in faith, and you trust that as you embrace the Scriptures, God is holding on to you like an anchor that will keep you steady. That's the first characteristic. The Word of God is an anchor in this world adrift in error. Characteristic number two the word of God is a delight to our thirsty souls. The word of God is a delight to our thirsty souls. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal once said, quote, All men seek happiness. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire. In both, all men seek happiness. That insight is significant. God designed humanity in such a way that our souls thirst for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for happiness, to use Pascal's word. We were made for glory, as we talked about this morning in the service. We're made for glory. We know that on our own we're missing something, even though we don't really know what that something is. I mean, look around the world and you will see the evidence Everywhere. Why are some people workaholics? Because their souls are hungry for satisfaction. Why do some people idolize having a certain kind of family? Because they want happiness. Why do other people tragically lose their lives to substance abuse? Because they're thirsty for something more. And when they can't find it, they'll do anything to numb the desire that they can't fulfill. All men everywhere seek happiness. We're made for glory this desire for satisfaction. And perhaps surprisingly, the Bible does not deny that. The Bible affirms that we were made for satisfaction. We were made to be fulfilled. We're made for glory. The Bible doesn't tell you to stop looking for satisfaction. Instead, the Bible tells you the truth that lasting satisfaction comes only from knowing God through His Word. In fact, when you read through Psalm 119, one of the things that will strike you is how deeply delighted In God's word, the psalmist is, he loves the word of God. This isn't a man who comes to the Bible because he has to. This is a man who comes to the scriptures because he wants to. There's a world of difference there. Look at verse 103. Listen to the psalmist's delight. He says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Again, that's not a man driven by duty. That's a man driven by sweetness. He tasted from God's word and he found that it was good. Or listen to how the psalmist puts it in verse 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Far from denying the desire for satisfaction, the Bible urges us to seek delight in the only place it can be found in communion with God through his word. I had a wise man who helped disciple me say once there's a difference between reading the Bible and coming to it like an instruction manual and coming to it like a treasure map. The person who comes to it like an instruction manual is just looking for answers. And I don't know if you guys have read the instruction manual to your dishwasher lately, but it's awful. I don't want to read that anymore. But what about a treasure map? If you held in your hands a map that was guaranteed to lead you to something eternally valuable, you would read it every day. You would study it. You would follow it. That's the difference. We don't come to the Bible like an instruction manual. It's not an answer book. The Bible is a treasure map, and the treasure is God. And through His Word, He helps us to know Him. And listen, I recognize that there are days when the Bible doesn't seem sweet to your taste. I recognize that there are times when you're reading the scriptures and it doesn't seem like that it's a treasure. I recognize that that's true because that's the world that I live in as well. We're reading through Ezekiel in our family devotions. And there are parts of Ezekiel where the boys are like, what does that mean, Dad? I'm like, I have no idea. Let's pray. And then we just pray. But that's where we have to remember that we walk by faith and not by sight. God's word tells us that there is delight found in the scriptures. So we keep reading it. We keep praying and we keep asking God to give us the delight that he promises. Look, that's the difference between a complacent Christian and a growing Christian. A complacent Christian opens the Bible, reads it and feels nothing and assumes there must be no point. A a growing Christian opens the Bible, reads it, feels nothing and prays. He prays. And he prays and begs God, Father, your promise is that there's delight to be found in your word. Why don't you open my eyes to see it? I mean, really, those are the two marks, those are the two marks of a Christian who delights in God's word, faithfulness and prayerfulness. You read, you keep reading, and you pray. And you ask God to give you eyes to see, so that you will treasure his word. So I guess I would say to you, why not why not try him on that? I mean, this upcoming year, just make one small change. Begin every morning by praying either verse 103 or 162. Just pray those verses back to God. And it, you'd say to Him, you, Your word says that it's a delight to read. Make me know that delight. Pray His word back to Him. Ask God to make His word sweet to your taste. Ask Him to give you joy as you commune with Him. In the scriptures, the word of God is a delight to our thirsty souls. It's what we were made to know God through his word. The third characteristic is an important balance to that second one. Even as we delight in God's word or we ask for delight in God's word, we have to be honest that there are seasons in the Christian life when we do experience more sorrow than satisfaction. Those are real times. The Puritans called those seasons fits of melancholy. That makes me feel better about myself. I feel smarter. Fits of melancholy. The phrase dark night of the soul comes to my mind as well. In God's providence, there are seasons of that in the Christian life. And they can come even when you're being faithful. You're regularly meditating on God's word. And still you find that there's more sorrow and sadness than there is satisfaction and joy. And it's during those times that we have to remember this third characteristic from Psalm 119. God's word is a refuge in seasons of sorrow. God's word is a refuge in seasons of sorrow. I will be straightforward with you. The two verses that I'm going to share in this point are among the most precious verses to me in all of the Bible. If you were to read my journals, you would see these verses in there over and over and over and over again as my prayer to the Lord. I love these verses. They help me. And that's what God intends these words to be as a refuge. So I pray that these will be encouragements to you. Look at verse 25. Verse 25. The Psalmist declares, "My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word." What I so appreciate about that verse is the honesty the psalmist doesn't say that he feels down. He says that he's lying in the dirt. My soul clings to the dust. That's, that's raw honesty. He doesn't hide from God. He doesn't hide from God. He doesn't pretend. He doesn't put on airs. He comes before God with an honest confession. My soul clings to the dust. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. It's so important that we get this point. The psalmist doesn't stop With the dust. He doesn't stop with the honesty. He then takes a step of faith. Look at the second part of the verse. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. The psalmist knows the answer for his dust ridden soul is found only in the word of God. So he picks himself up off the ground and he reads and he prays. The second verse hits on the same theme. It's just a few lines down, verse 28. The proximity of those two verses makes me think that this was a common experience for the psalmist. Look at verse 28. My soul melts away from sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. It's the same recipe. Honest confession followed by humble trust in the word of God. Same recipe. The psalmist has made the important discovery of the Christian life. His feelings are not sovereign. His feelings may be true, but his feelings are not ultimate. God is ultimate. God is sovereign. And the sovereign God gives life, how? Through his word, applied by his spirit. So when the seasons of sorrow, and notice I said when the seasons of sorrow, not if, when the seasons of sorrow come crashing down upon us, we don't have to hide from God. We don't have to pretend that everything is peachy keen. We can come to him with honest confession. We can tell him that our soul clings to the dust. But, and this is the key, we then follow that confession up with the expression of faith. That we believe God will give us life through his word. And amazingly, God answers us when we pray in this way. I remember one afternoon a couple of years ago when these verses became very real to me in a, in, in a tangible way. It was a really hard season of, of ministry, and I found myself one afternoon just lying in the back of the sanctuary of the church that we rented space from. Uh, I was just lying on the ground, and it was all I could do to just mutter a very small prayer, God, please help me. And then I remembered this verse, my soul clings to the dust, give me life according to your word. So there I was, face down in this dusty sanctuary, and God met me in his word. He even reminded me of that moment of Isaiah 55, that his word does not return void. And Laura actually had that promise from Isaiah 55 printed up on a canvas for me, and it's it's in my office now. God's word does not return void, and the Lord brought that to my mind as I was praying there in the floor of the sanctuary. God, give me life according to your word, and so I got up, and I went back to my desk, and I prepared for another Sunday. My point is, my point is, the word of God is a refuge in seasons of sorrow. He doesn't tell you to stuff the sorrow. He says, acknowledge it, but then go to my word with it and receive life. So let's run quickly to the scriptures. Trusting that God will give us life according to his word. That's characteristic number three. Fourth and final characteristic. Here the emphasis is on godliness. The word of God is a safeguard against sin. The word of God is a safeguard against sin. As dark as the world is. Christians know that our greatest struggle is often against the enemy within even after conversion we carry around with us what the Bible calls the flesh indwelling sin nature that wages war against the spirit so I'm tomorrow I don't anticipate that the forces of secularism are going to assault me and lead me astray I expect that my own flesh will assault me and lead me astray we carry that enemy within and we know this from experience how often do we find ourselves drawn to sin not because of temptation from the world but simply because of the desires of our own hearts right it comes from within us and we think about that great hymn come Thou fount of every blessing is there a more truthful line in all of christian hymnody than prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love there's a reason why every congregation i've ever been a part of sings that line the loudest Because we all know it's true. Our greatest enemy is within. And we're going to fight against that enemy until Christ returns. Psalm 119 reminds us that the only weapon in this fight is the word of God. The only weapon, the only offensive weapon in the Christian life is the word of God wielded by dependence upon the Holy Spirit. You see this from the very beginning of the psalm. Look at verse 9. Love how the psalmist puts it in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. It's significant that the psalmist uses that word guard. Think of guardrails on a highway. Perhaps through the mountains. Those guardrails keep you from disaster. They keep you from where you might naturally go. God's word works the same way. As we take in the scriptures... The truth of God's word guards us from crashing over the cliff of sin. That's why I'm so thankful that my parents drilled the Bible into my head and heart. That's why I'm so thankful for what's happening over there in that gym every Sunday night. Our kids are learning the word of God. And we trust the Holy Spirit's going to have to apply that in their hearts. But also, by his grace, he uses it to just guard them from evil. God's word keeps us from where we would naturally go. The psalmist goes right back to that in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Notice what he says. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I don't know why we only teach that verse to children. (laughs) I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Why does the psalmist meditate on and memorize God's word? So that he would not sin against the Lord. So that he would grow in godliness. The scriptures have a preserving protective effect in the life of a christian they guard our soul from satan's schemes and from that enemy within the flesh the word of god guards us i knew of a professor in seminary who would read one chapter from proverbs every day of the month whatever day it was december the 19th he would read proverbs 19 and part of the reason why he did that was because every month he would be reminded don't go down the road to foolishness don't go down the road that leads to death. He would hear it every week. It would guard him every month. It would guard his soul, and I think that there's wisdom in that. And so I'm sure this is true of many of you, but I, I want to grow in godliness this year, in 2022. Next December, I want to say, by God's grace, I'm more like Jesus and less like the old me. That's what I want to happen. And if that's our desire, friends, then we, we have to see the absolute necessity of taking in God's word. Godliness doesn't happen by accident and neither does it happen by osmosis. I'm quoting my father-in-law on that, by the way, when I was asking to marry his daughter. Doesn't happen by accident, doesn't happen by osmosis. This is how Christian character is formed through the work of God's word applied by God's spirit as we observe God's son in the truth of God's word. I mean, God could snap his fingers, so to speak, and make you more like Jesus, but that's not how God normally works. God works through means. And the only offensive weapon that he's given in the fight for godliness is the word of God. So here, here's an idea that I want you to consider. I've got a bunch of Bible reading plans up here, a bunch of different options for however, and by the way, there's no right way to do Bible reading, right? There's freedom do what works for you. I've got a bunch of Bible reading plans up here. You can also do a quick search online for a Bible reading plan. Ligonier Ministries. Ligonier Ministries has a number of really good options. So here's my idea that I want you to do. Pick out a plan and get ready to feast in the new year. Commit to taking in God's word deeper than you have before in 2022. And even better, pick a person or two to follow the same plan with you and meet with that, group, that person or that group of people regularly to talk about what you're reading or to simply pray. Pick a plan to read God's word regularly. Perhaps even include another person in that plan. That may seem like a small thing, but that's what the Bible calls discipleship. That's how discipleship happens in the life of a church. In fact, imagine an entire church full of people reading and praying and meditating on God's word together not just Sunday mornings but every morning every day imagine that kind of church it would start small and it would start with each one of us that's what I'm trying to impress upon you tonight a church's discipleship is about so much more than the programs she employs it's about her members taking ownership for the fact that your spiritual well-being is my responsibility and my spiritual well-being is your responsibility. And we're going to help one another grow together. We've only scratched the surface of, of this psalm. Psalm 119 is full of truth. I love this chapter of the Bible. I love all the Bible. This is amazing. <laughs> and we've only, just, we've only just begun to consider it. So I'm, I'm encouraging you friends, pick up God's word in 2022 in a way that you haven't before. It's an anchor, it's a delight, it's a refuge, a safeguard. In 2001, I went to um, Burkina Faso in West Africa on a mission trip. It was the first mission trip that I ever went on, and it was actually the place where the Lord began calling me to, uh, to ministry, in Burkina Faso, West Africa. And we met a man there. None of the people in this particular people group had the Bible in their language. They spoke a dialect that that wasn't written down you could only learn it by listening but there was one man in the village who who could speak french he had been to university and so he could speak french and he had a french bible and so he would read the bible in french and then he would translate it into these people's dialect so that they could hear the word of god and they would sit underneath these groves of trees each morning and this guy would read the bible in french And then he would give some really choppy translation of the French into their language and the people were just gripped with the truth of God's word. And I stood there recognizing I've got like 12 English translations on my shelf. And it was impactful for me to think to whom much is given, much is required. And I have God's word in my language. I can learn different languages to study it that's called excessive. I have God's word in my language. I have the freedom to read it. I have the ability to get together with other believers who also speak the same language and we can read it. And I was just struck by this, by this brother's testimony in West Africa that they so valued God's word. They would begin every day by listening to a translation from French into their dialect into what wouldn't pass even for a Sunday school lesson in our, in our world. And they loved it. There's really no better discipleship strategy than this for each member of the church to be deeply rooted in the word of God. And we have this incredible privilege and opportunity to do so. And the testimony of those brothers and sisters in West Africa should remind us that what we have in our hands is a treasure. It's a treasure. It's life. It's wisdom. It's right here. And so the question that I want to close with tonight is is, is just a simple question will I nibble at the Bible this year or will I feast on it? Will I nibble at the Bible or will I feast on it? I pray that we'll feast on it, friends. And I pray that the result will be a church full of disciple makers to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, these are, these are important things to think about. It's a simple strategy, God, but we want to be faithful to you. And so we do pray, Lord, that you would even work in the hearts of those who are present here tonight, that they would take up the call to anchor their lives deeply in the word of God, and perhaps even to bring another person or two along with them. Lord, we know how important it is for your church to be well-ordered, well-structured, and well-administrated. We want to think well about how to best Strategize in your church And yet at the same time father We know that the ministry of a church Is largely ground up Not top down It happens father as the members take ownership Of growing in godliness And caring for one another And seeing other people rooted in the truth And growing in faith in Christ And so we would just ask God that you would please raise up Raise up An army of people here at Fisherville who are committed to the word of God in daily life and in bringing other people along with them. Father, make us more faithful in discipleship. Help us, Father, to be, help us to be faithful in what you call us to do so that our church might grow in helping others follow Jesus, obey his word, and turn from sin. Lord, we ask that we would do this in our own homes. We pray that we would do it in our own lives. God, and we pray that you would be pleased to bear fruit to the glory of Christ. And we pray it in his name and for his sake. Amen.